0: Chapter 10 A Glory Over Everything. One day in 1849, when Harriet was working in the fields near the edge of the road, a white woman wearing a faded sunbonnet went past, driving a wagon. She stopped the wagon and watched Harriet for a few minutes. Then she spoke to her, asked her what her name was, and how she had acquired the deep scar on her forehead. Harriet told her story of the blow she received when she was a girl. After that, whenever the woman saw her in the field, she stopped to talk to her she told Harriet that she lived on a farm near Bucktown. Then one day, she said, not looking at Harriet, but looking instead at the overseer far off at the edge of the fields, if you ever need any help, Harriet, ever need any help, why, you let me know. That same year, the young heir to the Brodus estate died. Harriet mentioned the fact of his death to the white woman in the faded sunbonnet. The next time she saw her, She told her of the panic-stricken talk in the quarter, told her that slaves were afraid that the master, Dr. Thompson, would start selling them. She said that Doc Thompson no longer permitted any of them to hire their time. The woman nodded her head, clucked to the horse, and drove off, murmuring, if you ever need any help. The slaves were right about Dr. Thompson's intention. He began selling slaves almost immediately. Among the first ones sold were two of Harriet Tubman's sisters, they went south in the chain gang on a Saturday. When Harriet heard of the sale of her sister, she knew that the time had finally come when she must leave the plantation. She was reluctant to attempt the long trip north alone, not because of John Tubman's threat to betray her, but because she was afraid she might fall asleep somewhere along the way and so would be caught immediately. She persuaded three of her brothers to go with her, having made certain that John was asleep She left the cabin quietly and met her brothers at the edge of the plantation. They agreed that she was to lead the way, for she was more familiar with the woods than the others. The three men followed her, crashing through the underbrush, frightening themselves, stopping constantly to say, "'What was that?' or, "'Someone's coming.' She thought of Ben and how he had said any old body can go through the woods, crashing and mashing things down like a cow. She said sharply, "'Can't you boys go quieter? Watch where you're going!' "'One of them grumbled. "'Can't see in the dark. Ain't got cat's eyes like you.' "'You don't need cat's eyes,' she retorted. "'On a night like this, with all the stars out, it's not black dark. Use your own eyes.' "'She supposed they were doing the best they could, but they moved very slowly. "'She kept getting so far ahead of them that she had to stop and wait for them to catch up with her, "'lest they lose their way. "'Their progress was slow, uncertain. "'Their feet got tangled in every vine.' They tripped over fallen logs, and one of them fell flat on his face. They jumped, startled, at the most ordinary sounds. The murmur of the wind in the branches on the trees. The twittering of a bird. They kept turning around, looking back. They had not gone more than a mile when she became aware that they had stopped. She turned and went back to them. She could hear them whispering. One of them called out, "'Hat, what's the matter? We haven't got time to keep stopping like this.' "'We're going back.' "'No.' She said firmly, "We've got a good start. If we move fast and move quiet, then all three spoke at once. They said the same thing over and over in frantic, hurried whispers. All talking at once, they told her that they had changed their minds. Running away was too dangerous. Someone would surely see them and recognize them. By morning, the master would know they had took off. Then the handbills advertising them would be posted all over Dorchester County. The powder rollers would search for them." Even if they were lucky enough to elude the patrol, they could not possibly hide from the bloodhounds. The hounds would be baying after them, snuffing through the swamps and the underbrush, zigzagging through the deepest woods. The bloodhounds would surely find them, and everyone knew what happened to a runaway who was caught and brought back alive. She argued with them. Didn't they know that if they went back, they would be sold, if not tomorrow, then the next day or the next? Sold south. They had seen the chain gang's, Was that what they wanted? Were they going to be slaves for the rest of their lives? Didn't freedom mean anything to them? You're afraid, she said, trying to shame them into action. Go on back. I'm going north alone. Instead of being ashamed, they became angry. They shouted at her, telling her she was a fool, and they would make her go back to the plantation with them. Suddenly, they surrounded her, three men, her own brothers— "'jostling her, pushing her along, "'pinioning her arms behind her. "'She fought against them, wasting her strength, "'exhausting herself in a furious struggle. "'She was no match for the three strong men. "'She said, panting, "'All right, we'll go back. "'I'll go with you.' "'She led the way, moving slowly. "'Her thoughts were bitter. "'Not one of them was willing to take a small risk "'in order to be free. "'It had all seemed so perfect, so simple,' to have her brothers go with her, sharing the dangers of the trip together, just as a family should. Now, if she ever went north, she would have to go alone. Two days later, a slave working beside Harriet in the fields motioned to her. She bent toward him, listening. He said the water boy had just brought news to the field hands, and it had been passed from one to the other until it reached him. The news was that Harriet and her brothers had been sold to the Georgia trader, and that they were to be sent south with the chain gang that very night. Harriet went on working, but she knew a moment of panic. She would have to go north alone. She would have to start as soon as it was dark. She could not go with the, whole, with the chain gang. She might die on the way because of those inexplicable sleeping seizures. But then she, how could she run away? She might fall asleep in plain view along the road. But even if she fell asleep, she thought, the Lord would take care of her. She murmured a prayer. "'Lord, I'm going to hold steady to you, "'and you got to see me through.' Afterwards, she explained her decision "'to run the risk of going north alone in these words. "'I had reasoned this out in my mind. "'There was one of two things I had a right to, "'liberty or death. "'If I could not have one, I would have the other, "'for no man should take me alive. "'I should fight for my liberty "'as long as my strength lasted.' And when the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. At dusk, when the work in the fields was over, she started toward the big house. She had to let someone know that she was going north, someone she could trust. She could no longer, she no longer trusted John Tubman, and it gave her a lost, lonesome feeling. Her sister Mary worked in the big house, and she planned to tell Mary that she was going to run away, so someone would know. As she went toward the house, she saw the master, Doc Thompson, riding up the drive on his horse. She turned aside and went toward the quarter. A field hand had no legitimate reason for entering the kitchen of the big house, and yet there must be some way she could leave word so that afterwards someone would think about it and know that she had left a message. As she went toward the quarter, she began to sing. Dr. Thompson reined in his horse, turned around and looked at her. It was not the beauty of her voice that made him turn and watch her, frowning. It was the words of the song that she was singing, and something defiant in her manner that disturbed and puzzled him. When the old chariot comes, I'm going to leave you. I'm bound for the promised land, friends. I'm going to leave you. I'm sorry, friends, to leave you. Farewell, oh, farewell. But I'll meet you in the morning. Farewell, oh, farewell. "'I'll meet you in the morning when I reach the Promised Land "'on the other side of Jordan, for I'm bound for the Promised Land.' "'That night, when John Tubman was asleep "'and the fire had died down in the cabin, "'she took the ash cake that had been baked for their breakfast "'and a good-sized piece of salt herring "'and tied them together in an old bandana. "'By hoarding this small stock of food, "'she can make it last a long time.' And with the berries and edible roots she could find in the woods, she wouldn't starve. She decided that she would take the quilt with her, too. Her hands lingered over it. It felt soft and warm to her touch. Even in the dark, she thought she could tell one color from another because she knew its pattern and design so well. When John stirred in his sleep and she left the cabin quickly, then John stirred in his sleep and she left the cabin quickly, carrying the quilt carefully folded under her arm. Once she was off the plantation, she took to the woods, not following the North Star, not even looking for it, going instead toward Bucktown. She needed help. She was going to ask the white woman, who had stopped to talk to her so often, if she would help her. Perhaps she wouldn't, but she would soon find out. When she came to the farmhouse where the woman lived, she approached it cautiously, circling around it. It was so quiet. There was no sound at all, not even a dog barking or the sound of voices nothing. She tapped on the door gently. A voice said, who's there? She answered, Harriet from Dr. Thompson's place. When the woman opened the door, she did not seem at all surprised to see her. She glanced at the little bundle that Harriet was carrying at the quilt and invited her in. Then she sat down at the kitchen table and wrote two names on a slip of paper and handed the paper to Harriet. She said that those were the next places where it was safe for Harriet to stop. The first place was a farm, where there was a gate with big white posts and round knobs on top of them. The people would feed the people there would feed her, and when they thought it was safe for her to go on, they would tell her how to get to the next house, or take her there. For these were the first two stops on the Underground Railroad, going north from the eastern shore of Maryland. Thus, Harriet learned that the Underground Railroad that ran straight to the north was not a railroad at all, "'Neither did it run underground. "'It was composed of loosely organized group of people "'who offered food and shelter, or a place of concealment, "'the fugitives who had set out on the long road "'to the north and freedom. "'Harriet wanted to pay this woman who had befriended her, "'but she had no money. "'She gave her the patchwork quilt, "'the only beautiful object she had ever owned. "'That night she made her way through the woods.' And crouching in the underbrush "'whenever she heard the sound of horses' hooves "'staying there until the riders passed. "'Each time she wondered "'if they were already hunting for her. "'It would be so easy to describe her, "'the deep scar on her forehead like a dent, "'the old scars on the back of her neck, "'a husky-speaking voice, "'the lack of height scarcely five feet tall. "'The master would say she was wearing rough clothes "'when she ran away, "'that she had a bandana on her head, "'that she was muscular and strong.' She knew how accurately he would describe her. One of the slaves who could read used to tell the others what it said on those handbills that were nailed up on the trees along the edge of the roads. It was easy to recognize the handbills that advertised runaways because there was always a picture in one corner, a picture of a black man, a little running figure with a stick over his shoulder and a bundle tied at the end of the stick. Whenever she thought of the handbills, she walked faster. "'Sometimes she stumbled over old grapevines, "'gnarled and twisted, thick as a man's wrist, "'or became entangled in the tough, sinewy vine "'of the honeysuckle. "'But she kept going. "'In the morning, she came to the house "'where her friend had said she was to stop. "'She showed the slip of paper that she carried "'to the woman who answered her knock "'at the back door of the farmhouse. "'The woman fed her and then handed her a broom "'and told her to sweep the yard. "'Harriet hesitated, suddenly suspicious.' Then she decided that with a broom in her hand, working in the yard, she would look as though she belonged on the place. Certainly no one would suspect that she was a runaway. That night, the woman's husband, a farmer, loaded a wagon with produce. Harriet climbed in. He threw some blankets over her, and the wagon started. It was dark under the blankets and not exactly comfortable, but Harriet decided that riding was better than walking. She was surprised at her own lack of fear— "'wondered how it was that she so readily trusted "'these strangers who might betray her. "'For all she knew, the man driving the wagon "'might be taking her straight back to the master. "'She thought of those other rides in wagons "'when she was a child, "'the same clop-clop of the horse's feet, "'creak of the wagon, "'and the feeling of being lost "'because she did not know where she was going. "'She did not know her destination this time either, "'but she was not alarmed. "'She thought of John Tubman,' By this time, he must have told the master that she was gone. Then she thought of the plantation and how the land rolled gently down toward the river, thought of Ben and old Rit, and that old Rit would be inconsolable because her favorite daughter was missing. Lord, she prayed, I'm going to hold steady onto you. You've got to see me through. Then she went to sleep. The next morning, when the stars were still visible in the sky, the farmer stopped the wagon. Harriet was instantly awake. He told her to follow the river, to keep following it, to reach the next place where people would take her in and feed her. He said that she must travel only at night and she must stay off the roads because the patrol would be hunting for her. Harriet climbed out of the wagon. Thank you, she said simply, thinking how amazing it was that there should be white people who were willing to go to such lengths to help a slave get to the north. When she finally arrived in Pennsylvania, she had traveled roughly 90 miles from Dorchester County. She had slept on the ground outdoors at night. She had been rowed for miles up the Chomp Tank River by a man she had never seen before. She had been concealed in a haycock and had, at one point, spent a week hidden in a potato hole in a cabin which belonged to a family of free Negroes. She had been hidden in the attic of the home of a Quaker, She had been befriended by stout German farmers, whose guttural speech surprised her, and whose well-kept farms astonished her. She had never before seen barns and fences, farmhouses and outbuildings, so carefully painted. The cattle and horses were so clean they looked as though they had been scrubbed. When she crossed the line into the free state of Pennsylvania, the sun was coming up. She said, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. Now I was free. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. In December of 1849, most of the speeches made in Congress dealt with the need for a more stringent fugitive slave law. In January of 1850, Mr. Mason of Virginia said the existing law was inadequate. You may as well go down into the sea and endeavor to recover from his native element of fish, which had escaped from you, as expect to recover a fugitive. Every difficulty is thrown in your way by the population. Mr. Klingman of North Carolina stated that there were some 30,000 fugitives in the North, worth 15 million. Something must be done about it.